Well, this morning we are continuing in our series pointing us towards Easter and Resurrection Sunday and God's rescue of mankind through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Last week, we looked at Psalm 22 um, and somebody dealing with suffering and kind of wondering where God is in the midst of it. And then in the middle, as he's kind of saying, like, where is God? I feel abandoned. God answers him and the psalm shifts and he praises God after that. Um, this week, we're going to be looking at Psalm 118. Um, if you want to turn there uh, already, it's page 537 in the Bible in front of you, or you can follow in whatever Bible you are using or app you are using. Um, but you can think of Psalm 118 like this. Um, this is what the guy in Psalm, one, in Psalm 22 would have written a year or two later when he looked back and he said, I was suffering, but God rescued me and he saved me. And so this is him kind of looking back. This is how I see it. It's not actually him, I don't think, the same person, but looking back and saying, oh, this is what happened, and I trust that God will rescue. And so you can think of it kind of like that, when he remembered his suffering and God's response to him. And so the focus um, of this psalm is on God's steadfast love, how he continues to love us, is loyal to us, no matter what, no matter the circumstances, no matter how bad it looks, God still loves us, and nothing can break his covenant love with us. Um, this psalm was actually used as a liturgy, as a guide for worshiping, um, for praising God at several Jewish feasts and other occasions. Um, it includes both individual worship elements and corporate group worship elements together, um, which is what you saw already. We actually used this this morning in our call to worship the same way they would have used it um, in Israel, where it was a call and response kind of thing. And like many Old Testament passages, this psalm gains a greater meaning and significance after Jesus arrives. We have the benefit of being on the other side of that and being able to look back and see how all of the pieces connect together. Um, this doesn't mean it changes meanings or it loses its original meaning, but that it gets an added meaning through Jesus. And this psalm connects to Jesus in a particular way through Palm Sunday, which is why we are covering it today on this day of Palm Sunday. Um, you'll hear the verses we just heard in our scripture reading that Kate read for us um, towards the end of this psalm. Um, the crowd, as Jesus enters the city, would most likely have this psalm on their minds as Jesus is coming in around the time of the Passover. That's because Psalm 118 is the last of what's the Hallel Psalms of 113 through 118, and these are recited every Passover as a reminder of what God has done for them in the Exodus. And so these psalms, and this one in particular, um, they would sing it and remember it. And so this is exactly when Jesus shows up on the scene in Jerusalem. So this would be on their minds. And so let's read this together, um, Psalm 118. Um, we're going to do just like we did last week. I'm going to read the whole thing, all of us together. I know it's a little long, um, but it'll be good for us to read it. this. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Let Israel say, his faithful love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his faithful love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his faithful love endures forever. I called to the Lord in distress, and the Lord answered me, and put me in a spacious place. The Lord is for me, I will not be afraid. What can a mere mortal do to me? The Lord is my helper. Therefore, I will look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humanity. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in nobles. Now, 
I'm going to pause there for just a second because I want you just to listen as we go. In any scripture, repetition is important, but especially in the Psalms, when they repeat something multiple times, they're like, it's like flashing red lights and like highlighter on your page. So listen for the repetition um, of words and phrases as we go because it's going to tell you kind of what is important as we go. We just heard a couple of those. Then verse 10. He says, all the nations surrounded me in the name of the Lord, I destroyed them. They surrounded me, yes, they surrounded me in the name of the Lord, I destroyed them. They surrounded me like bees, and they were extinguished like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I destroyed them. They pushed me hard to make me fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. There are shouts of joy and victory in the tents of the righteous, the Lord's right hand performs valiantly. The Lord's right hand is raised. The Lord's right hand performs valiantly. I will not die, but I will live and proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord disciplined me severely, but did not give me over to death. Open the gates of righteousness for me. I will enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the Lord's gate. The righteous will enter through it. I will give thanks to you because you have answered me and you have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from the Lord. It is wondrous in our sight. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God and has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. So as we go through, we're going to look at this psalm in kind of three movements. First, we see kind of an individual movement of remembrance and praise in verses 1 through 13. Then we see a corporate or group remembrance and praise in 14 through 21. And then in the last section, 22 through 29, there's actually a whole bunch of verses in here that point to Jesus. And so we're going to cover those as we see them. And so first, we're going to look at the individual portion in the first verses where he talks about that, that God has rescued me. And so I trust in him, right? He was rescued when he called out, right? When he called out to God, he says, God answered no waiting, no rituals, no extra steps, just calling out, and God answered him. He delivered him from his distress, right? I feel like I say this a lot, but there's, there's verses in here that, that the English translation just doesn't quite do us justice. Um, the phrase, you can have this phrase where it says, he put me in a spacious place. Um, for us, kind of sounds like this is an interesting way to describe what is going on. But the idea he's trying to get across is this. And when he takes the word from distress and puts it next to this one, what he's basically saying is, um, I was in a tight spot and you moved me to a place where I could be free and I could rest. I was stuck. I was struggling to breathe. I was overwhelmed and God moved me. He freed me. He gave me room to breathe, a place to rest. So when it talks about a spacious place, it's a space to be free, to relax, to rest. And so God answered. Then he was surrounded but delivered in verses 10 through 13, right? He talks about how he was surrounded. He does it three times. He was surrounded. He was surrounded by all the nations. He was surrounded like a swarm of bees surrounding him. 
right? He was in trouble, and there seemed to be no way out. His enemies and his obstacles were everywhere. No matter which way he turned, they were there. But he destroyed them, or you may have, he cut them off. In the name of the Lord, he was delivered. He was rescued. He put out the fire of bees swarming and stinging. Right? When it says like thorns, think of a, a dry brush pile that you light on fire and how fast it burns. That's what he's saying. That's how fast everything disappeared and went out of his way and how he was restored. It was over. And as a result of that, he had confidence in God because God had delivered him before and he knew that God could deliver him again. And so his remembrance of God's rescue results in him praising God and remembering that he can trust in him. He calls God his refuge, his safe place, a place where he is protected, where he can take his guard down, where he can rest, where he doesn't have to worry. God will protect him and provide for him in his refuge. And trusting in God, right, he says, is better than trusting in man or the things of this world, and I found myself this week just kind of wondering that. Is, is that true for me? Do I really actually trust in God more than the things of this world, more than man, more than the things around me? Right? Because when I come up against something, I just think of what's the solution to this problem? Right? And you may do that too. I need a job. I need insurance. I need more friends. I need a new car. I need a new medication. Right? We, these are all the things of the world that help get us through. Right, That's the answer to our problem. But how many of us actually just say, I just need Jesus. I just need Jesus, and he will be enough. Yes, we mean, may need some of those things later, but we shouldn't rely on those things. Right? We should say, Jesus is with me. He will protect me. He will guide me. He will rescue me. And I'm with you. I'm not very good at doing that one either. So I think we can all uh, together learn to trust in Jesus more than the things of, the world, of this world because I think we do that more than we realize. But in addition to his refuge and trusting in him, he knows God is his helper. God is the one who is there, who helps him through, who walks with him, who finds the way out. And so he has nothing to fear. Last week, we saw David cry out in Psalm 22, and he felt abandoned, like God wasn't listening, like he wasn't there. This week, right, the psalmist, the one who writes this, calls out, and God answers. He has trust and confidence in God, so much so that he says, I have nothing to be afraid of, right? He won't be afraid. Even though he was surrounded and pushed around, he was not afraid. He knows that whatever man or the things of this world try to do to him, none of it compares or has any chance against God. As long as God is on his side, he is good. So we see him do this as an individual. I was in trouble, God answered. So I praise him, I trust in him, I seek refuge in him. And so in the next section, we're going to see him shift from just an individual rescue and praise to a corporate or group rescue and praise. And so we see this next. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's, a, you know, springtime, so, you know, everything outside is just trying to kill you all the time here in Austin. So, fun times. Um, God has rescued the righteous, and so we praise him. And so it begins in verse 14, this section, where he said, 
He says, God is his strength. My song is become my salvation. Now, one of the reasons we know this shifts from individual to corporate, because it sounds like, hey, this is just one guy saying this, is because this is a direct quote from Exodus 15, as in word for word, same exact thing as Exodus 15, verse 2, right? Which says, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Now, in Exodus 15, this is the song that Israel sang after they crossed the Red Sea. They come out of Egypt. They don't have anywhere to go. God says, oh, just head towards this sea. And they're like, okay. And then they get there and say, now what are we going to do? And God provides for them, and they cross the Red Sea on dry ground as he splits the water, and they get to the other side. And when they get to the other side, and they're away from the Egyptians, they sing a song together. And that's how the song starts. Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Right? This song is a reminder that, of what they've seen and then it demonstrated God's strength over nature and over his powerful enemies. He remembers how God rescued not just individual people, but large groups of people. I think there were like millions in this group that crossed the Red Sea. It's a reminder of God's strength. And then we get in verses 15 and 16 this repetition Right? His right hand performs valiantly. And throughout Scripture, um, just in case you didn't already know this, any reference to God's right hand or right arm is a reference to God's power and strength. Right? It's basically like if you hear that, you're thinking of somebody doing this, but with way bigger muscles than what, what I've got going on here. So somebody strong doing this, this is what you should think of when you hear God's right hand. And so we see this in Exodus 15 as well, just a couple of verses down from what we saw at the beginning. It says, Lord, your right hand is glorious in power. Lord, your right hand shattered the enemy. And so they're remembering what God did in the Exodus and the power that he displayed in that moment. And he just, he displayed it and he rescued them, which is why he says, the Lord is my song. Right? When they say the Lord is my song, they're actually referencing a very specific type of song which is a victory song because they have just been delivered. They have won the battle. The Egyptian army, the ones that chased them, have all disappeared and they actually didn't have to do anything. And so they're rejoicing. They're celebrating. They're singing this song, right? God, Jesus is our song of victory over sin. And then he says, the Lord is also my salvation. He is the one who saved me. No matter the trouble I'm in, no matter the situation, God is the one who can save me. God is the one who will save me. But then we got a verse in here that kind of caught my attention as I was reading it. Maybe it did to you, verse 18, that says, The Lord disciplined me severely, but did not give me over to death. So what he's saying in this verse is, sometimes we see suffering or we see hard times as God's punishment, right? We think, oh, maybe I've done something wrong, and God is punishing me, or rejecting me, or turning away from me. But that's not how the psalmist sees these things. He sees them as discipline, which is not punishment. I know sometimes we can confuse those two, especially for kids, right? Discipline and punishment seem like the same thing, right? But sort of different, right? But this is correction and preparation in these times, Right? God is using them to bring us back to God, to build his trust, 
to prepare his faith for the things to come. Right? He had to be disciplined to be delivered. He had to be delivered from the hold of sin or delivered from a lack of faith to be strengthened, to be empowered, and to be fully trusting of God in all circumstances. And because God has delivered us as a people, Israelites, and then us, right? how do we respond? And it's, we respond by praising him. We see this in 19 and 20. Open the gates of righteousness for me. I will enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the Lord's gate. The righteous will enter through it. it and you should picture kind of this, this group of people marching and singing towards these gates to praise God, to go into the temple and to praise Right? This is the, the gates in mind, or probably these gates that the people would walk through to worship God. Right? They are the gates of righteousness, which means those who are righteous go through this and they belong on the other side. Right? So the righteous are a specific group of people who pass through this certain gate. It's like a VIP entrance kind of thing, right? Only the VIPs who have certain passes or credentials pass through to the other side and belong there, and nobody else can get in. And the same is true for this. The righteous have the credentials. They have the pass. They belong on the other side. They belong worshiping God in the temple, and they can pass through. And he talks about, right, in 19 and 20, that the righteous are the ones who go in, and he mentions the righteous in verse 15 as well. But the question I had is, well, well, who are the righteous? Or how do you become that? How do you get those credentials? How do you get the pass to go through the gates and worship on the other side? And I think from this psalm, what he's telling us is the righteous are God's chosen people. First in Israel, right, they were God's chosen people to demonstrate his love and care and how he, people would walk with him. And what, the, what a nation who followed him would look like. And then we became his chosen people, right? We are chosen by him. And I think the key there is his chosen people, right? That's how we become righteous. It's not our own righteousness. We don't do enough good stuff. We don't do enough good works. We're not more good than we are bad, even though we may think that. Right? But the key to becoming righteous is that God chooses you and he saves you and he brings you to faith. And he renews you and he puts a new spirit in you because you trust in him for your salvation. That's how we become righteous. That's how we become part of God's chosen people. It's as we trust in him and all the things that he has given us and done for us. And then we can move through the gate and worship him together. All of us together. And so we have this group of people praising God and marching and singing to praise him through the gates. And then we get to the third section where we talk about Jesus has rescued us, and so we thank him. And we're going to see some significant connections here to Jesus and to Palm Sunday, so let's work our way through. It starts with verse 22. Right? We get a verse that says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is a reference to the building process, right? The cornerstone in these days was the most important stone because everything was built off of this stone. And so because of that, it had to be the right size. It had to be the right shape. And as a result, stones that they tried there that didn't fit or wouldn't work were cast aside. And they didn't use them and they, they kind of rejected them. 
They were seen as not good enough, set aside or cast out. And so the writer is saying he felt like this stone, this cornerstone that was cast out, that he wasn't good enough, that he was set aside, that he was cast out. Right, But the second half of the verse gives us hope. He was cast out. He was set aside. But God had restored him. He was once set aside, but now he was in the center. He was crucial. He was whole. He was strong. He is able to stand up to serve and serve God well. So I think he is talking about himself, but I think he's talking about more than that in this verse. So I think the stone here can be a reference to an individual person. I think it can also be a reference to a specific group of God's people, like Israel. Right? There are times in their history when they didn't do so well at following what God wanted them to do. And so there were times where they were cast out. They were sent into exile right, to get their attention so that they could be delivered, so that they could return to God. And so they felt cast out, but they were restored. Or the church. Right? There's been times in our history as a church or in the history of the church in general where we may have felt like, hey, we're cast out. We're not accomplishing anything. We're not moving forward. God is not doing something in us. But he restores us. He renews us. He puts us back in a prominent place. And so have you ever felt cast out or set aside or not good enough or not strong enough or like the world has passed you by and you're on the sidelines, right? It's a tough place to be when you feel like that. But the good news is God's specialty is taking those who are cast out, those who are hurting, those who are broken, and making them whole and using them mightily. So no matter where you find yourself this morning, God can rescue you and use you to do great things for him. And also in this section, as we kind of work our way through, is a verse that connects us directly to Palm Sunday. This is the day when Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey, and the people wave branches and shout to him. And it's verses 25 and 26, and it says, Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. These are the verses that were shouted by the crowd as Jesus entered the city. Right, we heard that earlier in our scripture reading. Hosanna, which is what we heard um, in Matthew, is a translation of the Hebrew word for save. So they are saying save us, just in a different way. And remember, these psalms would be on the minds of the people because of Passover. So in shouting this at Jesus, they were connecting Jesus to the coming Messiah. They believed he is the one who would come and would rescue them. There's also an interesting verse in here, verse 27, which is really hard to understand, and people sort of argue about how to translate this. Ours says, bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You may have something a little different in there. Um, this verse is difficult to understand, and I'm admitting up front, I am not a Hebrew scholar, so I'm re relying on other people's work. But I think the best translation of this, um, which I've seen this week, is actually from the NIV, which says this, With bows in hand, 
join the festival, festival, festival procession up to the horns of the altar. Now, to me, this makes more sense. Right? It gives us insight into why the crowd grabs branches and waves them as Jesus enters the city because the verses right here in Psalm 118 say, with branches in hand, we march to praise God. We're waving them. And so they're waving branches to honor God. And some people said this is probably part of this normal celebration even when Jesus doesn't show up. They have branches in hand. And this time... Jesus shows up and they say, what do we do to honor God? What do we do to honor the Messiah? We quote from Psalm 118 that tells us the blessed one is coming and we wave branches. That's what's happening in this scene. It connects all the way back to Psalm 118. But how would Jesus respond to this? Because if you are with us for the book of Mark, or you have read through the Gospels even one time, Jesus often in these kinds of situations dismisses the crowd or diffuses the situation and says, nope, you got the wrong guy, or it's not time yet, and I'm just going to walk through and maybe we'll do this later. So how would Jesus respond here as he comes into the city and sees all of this? Um, We're going to see in Matthew 21 the same chapter following the triumphal entry, which is Palm Sunday, into Jerusalem. Now, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to kind of give you the rundown. But this is what happens. Jesus then goes from there to the temple. He sees the money changers in the temple, and they're kind of taking advantage of the people who are worshiping there, um, making some money off of people getting the sacrifices they need. And he goes in there, and he throws over the temples, right? My temple will not be a den of robbers. And then he leaves. And then the next day, he goes back. And he teaches a couple of parables. And then he says this. In verse 42 of chapter 21, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This is what the Lord has done, and it is wonderful in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. Does that first part sound familiar? Right? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And so Jesus, in connecting his parables and the crowd's shouts of praise all together, quotes from Psalm 118, the same psalm that they were shouting, to connect the dots, to make his point. Right? Because they were saying, he's the Messiah. He is the one who was to come. And Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. I am the one who has come. I am going to be the stone that was rejected, the one that you think I am. He is fully embracing their hope that he is the Messiah. And he is saying, I am the Messiah. But he's also saying, but not in the way you expect. Not the way that you think. I'm not going to come in and take over and free you from the Romans and restore you to what you think you should be. It's going to be a little different. He will be rejected, just like the cornerstone that was cast out. But he would take this rejection by the people all the way to the point of being crucified. And through his death and through his resurrection, he would become the cornerstone. He would become the chief 
cornerstone. Because Jesus isn't the only one who picks up and uses this verse in Psalm 118. Later, Peter would also use the same thing. This is what it sounds like in 1 Peter. It says, So honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone. And that's verse 7 where he quotes from Psalm 118. And I want to actually go back up to verse 6 that says this. For it stands in Scripture. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. He's saying the cornerstone that was cast out, Jesus who was cast out, who was restored, who becomes the chief cornerstone as God works through him and brings him back from the dead. Right? If we believe in him, we will never be put to shame. We can stand with and on the cornerstone. And so how do we respond? Right? Because this is what we've seen all along. He says what happens and he tells us how to respond. How do we respond to God's rescue through Jesus? Well, in verse 29, he tells us, right? Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. And just in case you didn't connect the dots, that's verse 1 of this psalm. And so one and the last one are the same to remind us that it is about Jesus' loyal, steadfast, covenant love towards us. And just like Peter says, as we believe in him, as we trust in him, his love for us never goes away. He never disappears. He never abandons us. He never walks away from us. We never have to doubt that we can trust him more than the things of this world. We can give him thanks and praise and trust because he puts us in a spacious place, a place of rest, a place of freedom, a place of trust in him. And we thank him and we praise him because, and there's another verse in here that everyone I think is pretty familiar with, and we didn't cover it yet, but I think this is, this is how we're going to end with this verse, verse 24, that says, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Right? I think that sounds very familiar to most of you. <clears throat> and we think of this often as every day, which is sort of true, but not technically what it's referencing in this psalm. Because I think, especially in this psalm, it's referring to a specific day. Right? The day of rescue, the day God frees you from your struggle, frees you from your pain, frees you from your hardship, and sets you free. Now, whether that's free from your struggle with sin, and you become a believer in Christ, and the power and penalty of sin in your life is conquered, or it's from your struggle with something that you're dealing with, the hardship or discipline or persecution, Right? The day that you are rescued, that is the day the Lord has made and the day in which we rejoice. We rejoice because we were rescued. We were saved. We were redeemed. We were made new. Which, if you think about it, 
as believers in Christ, every day is the day you are set free from the power and penalty of sin through the death of Jesus. So it isn't just the day he has made, but it's a remembrance, it's a reminder of the day that you were rescued and that you're still rescued. No matter how many times we mess up, no matter how many times we do that thing we said we'd never do again, no matter how many times we struggle or doubt or sin, as we confess, as we trust, and as we repent, we are rescued. Right? So each day we remember how God has rescued us, and we rejoice and we praise Him for what He has done for us. Just like we remember on Palm Sunday that He is the Messiah, He is the one that has come to rescue us. but not in the way we usually think to rescue us from our sin, from ourselves, so that we could have life and so that we could have salvation. And this week as we go, right, from this triumphant thing on Sunday morning to the rest of the week, take some time to think and to reflect about what happens with the Last Supper and the betrayal and the arrest and the trial and the crucifixion. And all that God went through to rescue you, to rescue us, so that we could say, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Will you pray with me this morning? God, we come before you and we thank you for your rescue. We thank you that you have come for us, just like you came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey We can praise you. We can celebrate that you are the Messiah. You are the one sent by God to rescue us, to rescue us from sin. So God, help us to trust in you more than the things of this world. Help us to remember the things that you have done for us, how you have made us righteous. You have made us whole. You have made us new. God, and help us to just celebrate and reflect this week as we think about what you have done for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.